it's a very challenging sport, and I think challenging in a very different way, in a very niche way compared to uh, other strength sports. There's a there's a strong uh, strength component, strength endurance component to the sport itself, and there's a lot of repetition to the sports events. And it, it's very difficult, uh, not just physiologically, but mentally, for somebody to be standing on a 5 by 5 platform and repeating the same movement over and over and over with, with proficiency for the course of 10 minutes. Welcome to the Bar Band Podcast where we talk to the smartest athletes, coaches, and minds from around the world of strength. I'm your host, David Thomas Tao, and this podcast is presented by barbend.com. Today I'm talking to Kettlebell Sport World Champion and Master of Sport. We'll explain what that is later in the episode, Juan Pegot. Spoiler alert, Juan is actually my coach, and I interact with him pretty darn regularly, as you might imagine. But we're flipping the script this time. I'm asking Juan to dive deep on the differences between kettlebells as a training tool versus contested sport, and why the latter, a sport popular in Eastern Europe, by the way, has taken so long to catch on in the Western world. And does a kettlebell sport set really feel like doing the CrossFit workout Fran for 10 minutes straight? You be the judge. Now let's get on with the show. Juan, it's a pleasure to sit down this way because we see each other a lot, but it's always basically you breaking down my form and telling me how to be a better athlete. So sitting down talking to you for a podcast is a new experience. I hope this isn't super awkward, but hey, you're still my coach. So you can still call me out on stuff. No, dude, this is a pleasure. I've been actually looking forward to this for a while. And like, it's, it's definitely a different dynamic from when we usually do our sit downs. But yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Well, first things first, tell us a little bit about your athletic journey, just because, you know, I ask that for a lot of people, but I think it's really important context as far as, you know, why you look at things the way you do today. And I know that your approach and your philosophy to training has actually changed a lot, even over the course of how long we've known each other, which has not been, you know, has not been like a decade plus or anything. So give us a little bit about your athletic background and journey, the, you know, the Cliff Notes version. I've been a... Uh... A trainer since 2004, I'm going to say. Um, I, to be honest, like growing up, we didn't really connect with a lot of different sports. I played handball when I was in high school. I practiced capoeira and Brazilian jiu-jitsu when I was younger. But it wasn't really until, I'd say, 2013, after having spent some time uh, doing training at different big box facilities and independent facilities, that I found kettlebell sport. And I remember trying out for the U.S. national team and making it a, a point that I wanted to be on that team. I wanted to go to Russia. I wanted to compete. And that's that's like Cliff Notes version as far as like my history when it comes to, to bell training. Yeah. Well, how did you first discover? So discovering kettlebells, kettlebells started to, and I've talked to Steve Cotter about this, you know, who did a lot to popularize kettlebell training and kettlebell sport in the US. And we talked about that there was like a tipping point where kettlebells went from being this thing that like, if you heard about, you maybe could order online and you'd wait like four months to get them shipped to you if you were lucky. Or like you, people were making kettlebells, like homemade kettlebells out of like concrete and metal scraps and things like that. But there was this tipping point to where kettlebells went from being this oddity that were hard to find to where they started becoming widely available. And and Steve Cotter had said, it's when you could go into like a hotel gym and you start seeing kettlebells, that's when you know there was a tipping point. So that's how people get a lot of exposure to kettlebells, especially through CrossFit, kettlebell swings, American swings, things like that. But kettlebell sport is still something that's much, much, much more narrow. The vast majority, I'd probably say it's like 99% of people who regularly train with kettlebells don't train in kettlebell sport and probably don't even know what kettlebell sport is. So what did you first discover that aspect of kettlebell training? Well, I'm going to say it was probably spring of 2013 uh, when I was just looking 
I've been working already since 2008 from 2013 with kettlebells. That was my initial exposure to hard style training, and it was through other colleagues that I had with me. And I just remember one time one of my managers was saying, hey, you know, you should, you're really good at this. You should really good at kettlebell training. Why don't you compete in it? And it just like lit a spark under my under me where I was just like, oh, this is curious. I didn't even know that it was something that was contested. And I just quit Google search. I found out that there was an event in spring of 2013, and I decided to just jump in uh, using the information that I already had as far as my own training. And I pretty much remember hard styling for 10 minutes, which did not feel too good. But it was a great experience. I remember going in 16 kilo, did like 97 reps my first time shaking hands of like legends like Sergey Rudnev, you know, who just walked up to me and it was a, such an uplifting experience. And I think that's when I, I said, you know what, I'm, I can see this being something that I connect with, something that I want to do long term. And I just prepped for the, the spring of the same year uh, to do my, my USA Nationals competition, my first one. Well, for folks who aren't super familiar with kettlebell sport, Juan is is actually a world champion in what's called the long cycle or just long cycle. It's not the long cycle. I need to take that word out of there, which is 10 minutes straight of clean and jerks with two kettlebells. And you don't put them down. This isn't like do as many reps in a minute, put them down for 10 seconds. No, you as soon as you pick up the bells, the clock starts, the rep counter starts. And when you put them down, you're done. Right. So you're not breaking this into other sets. You're going for 10 minutes straight. It takes an immense amount of breathing control, timing and technique. And you were coming in and doing that without a lot of technique refinement. You were just kind of muscling them in your first competition. Right. Yes, absolutely. You know, after that first competition, you probably saw folks who actually had maybe more refined technique. You're meeting other people in the sport. What was your progression in like, oh, okay, I need to. Did you find a coach? Like, did you start, did you know there were specific technical aspects you wanted to start working on? Take us through that progression from that first competition and your first like actual exposure to other athletes in the sport to like, okay, I need to refine. I'm actually going to try and make a national team and train toward this. Yeah, definitely. I, I ended up uh, doing a, a quick search and ended up seeing that the IKSF was going to be hosting a level one certification a couple weeks after my first competition. And I decided this would be a great opportunity. I knew that Steve Cotter was, was uh, basically like the... the the head dog when it came to IKFF and I signed up for the, for the event, uh, ended up going to the certification. It was a weekend long cert the way most of them ended up being for fitness pros. And I didn't meet Steve, but I ended up meeting Ken Blackburn there. And Ken was just an amazing, uh, this educator. He taught me so much when it came to my initial technique. And I, I there was a time where I was working with Ken as one of my coaches. Uh, he was programmed for me. And from there, I'd say, I went to my my second competition using some of the skills that I learned during the the course, which was in New Hampshire as an IKFF event as well. And I that was kind of the progression that I used to be able to get ready for nationals in September 2013. It wasn't until after nationals when I decided let me let me take on a coach for preparation for worlds, which is when I ended up working with a gentleman named Sergey Hetmanenko, who was one of the head coaches for the USA national team, and I worked with him for a couple of months, helped me get ready. For, for Worlds, had a great set, uh, won my first uh, world championship, which was uh, just a super stoked experience. I remember coming home with the medal and my daughter was 18 months old, put it around her neck. I was like, the daddy got this for you. And it was, it was great, man. I mean, like that's, I think the first swing was when I knew I was hooked. I love, I love, that's a great phrase. You should get that made to t-shirts, like hooked on the first swing or something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So your first world champ, by the way, this is making me really self-conscious because I've been training in kettlebell sport for over a year now and I'm nowhere near where Juan, where Juan was. I'm not, I'm not competing in any, in any world competitions yet, but I will say your progression was obviously really fantastic early on. That first worlds, was that with, uh, amateur weight 24 kilo bells? 
Yes, it was. Yeah. And around what kilo. what body weight were you competing? Because I think a lot of people don't realize kettlebell sport has body weight classes, just like weightlifting. Yeah, it does. Uh, I was competing at the seventy eight kilo body weight division, so that was uh, one seventy one point six, I believe. And uh, I remember it came in at like about one hundred and seventy one pounds flat. It was it was a small division. Uh, most of the guys I, I kind of weighed in a little on the heavier side in the eighty five kilo division. So I think it was just, if I remember correctly, uh, me and one other guy we ended up tying for reps, and I came in lighter than him. So because I came in lighter, the the wind went to me because I pound for pound ended up moving more weight. And uh, for the most part, whenever it was a bigger event, I I would usually walk around at about eighty to eighty two kilos, and I would cut down to seventy eight whenever I had to do something like nationals or go to worlds. Got it. Now I say amateur weight. That's two twenty four kilo bells for men. Twenty four kilos is the amateur weight. Thir- uh, twenty eight is semi pro. Thirty two kilos is pro. For women, the pro weight is 24 kilograms. So the men's amateur weight is the women's pro weight. How long did it take for you to go from that progression from competing at 24 with 24 kilo bells to, you know, competing at 32 kilo bells, which is kind of, you know, where you, where you are now and, and where you've had some extended international success as well? Two and a half years, uh, two and a half years to progress from the amateur 24 kilo to professional 32. And it wasn't a, a huge set when I did that 32 kilo, uh, first time. I think my, First numbers were about 28 reps in 10 minutes, uh, which is, which it was still impressive for, you know, considering where I was. But it, at that point, I didn't feel ready for it. I just, I put it on the back burner as far as like making sure I didn't rush into competing with 32s again. And I took some time just to prepare. And I think it was September 2016 when I, I did my first like big 32 kilo competition and I ended up hitting master sport, uh, on, on the first try. And let's let's talk about master of sport because what you know what is that we hear about that that seems like such a a, a weird phrase and it gets thrown around a lot um, in in some sports you can be master of sport in a lot of different sports but in the U.S. we don't necessarily have like a similar thing here so what is master of sport you know which which governing body gives you like gives you this how did you know you had qualified for it et cetera. So generally, the way that the rankings work is that there's a, a correlation between your body weight or the body weight division that you fall in and the bells that you're competing with. And then you do all that tally in accordance with the amount of repetitions you do. So with that, my quota for the World Association of Kettlebell Sports Clubs, which is the federation I competed in in September 2016, uh, their quota, I believe, was 48 reps for a master of sport rank at 78 kilo body weight. And I first set was, I think, 50 or 51, uh, the first time that I hit it. Other federations end up having slightly different quotas. So I, I know that the IUKL, I think their quota was 53 reps for the same bodyweight division. So there's a little fluctuation from one, one federation into the other. But generally what master sport it means, it's almost like the first degree of a black belt that you mm-hmm. would attain. It, it, it earns you a, a state of... Uh, honor of notoriety of, of accomplishment and it, it's not the i don't think it's the pinnacle of accomplishment i think it's more like the the the, the linchpin that leads you into further progression so after master sport then you have international class master sport and then after several years of competing and earning those titles continuously you can get to honored master sport which for that you end up having to have world championship competitions one aside from having hit those numbers consistently Got it. So I, I like that analogy. It's kind of like a black belt, right? And there are different levels of that. But like, if someone's a black belt, they know what they know what they're doing. They've reached a proficient or maybe even distinguished level of accomplishment. And there are gradations above that. There are layers above that. You keep climbing the ladder, but it's like you are a master of sport. You have you have 
checked the boxes and accomplished like a minimum that is actually quite a bit of proficiency in the sport uh, competing in like a, in, a, in a tested sanctioned environment. Yes. Yes, correct. Well, let's talk about all these federations. It seems like for an awfully small sport, at least kettlebell sport in North America is awfully small. It's a little bit bigger in Eastern Europe, but it's awfully small here. Why are all these, why are there all these different federations? Like any insight into that? It's been more of a, of a grab for power than, mm. than anything else. I think, um, the, the needs of the athlete and the growth of the community, uh, for a while wasn't really at the forefront. And it was a lot more about, you know, what, how much registration money can we get in? How much advertising and lining of certain people's pockets can we do? Uh, other than the actual growth of the community, some events that I've attended, uh, you can tell that there's been a little skimping as far as, you know, where, where some of the funds go. And it's, it's added to, I think, a little bit of, um, how can I put it? It's made it where some people have been a little demotivated to continue, you know, it, when it comes to the actual conversion of the sport. I think that if the division of the different federations uh, and, and the consistent, I guess, a climbing to see who ends up being the top dog and who ends up being the, the, the governing body can be put aside, then we'll have, end up having a lot more growth within the community. Interesting. Now, let's talk about kettlebell sport in America. Right. It's still a super niche sport. We cover niche sports at Barben. We cover weightlifting, powerlifting, bodybuilding, CrossFit, strongman, uh, arm wrestling. We covered. Obviously, I'm a little biased because I really enjoy kettlebell sport, maybe more than the average bear, but it is still very much, I would call it the smallest strength sport that is contested in a sanctioned environment in the United States. Do you think there's any reason it beyond what you said about maybe it not? the different federations maybe not always having the athlete's interest in mind is there any reason it hasn't really caught on more in the united states especially with the greater accessibility of kettle of kettlebells it's a very challenging sport and i think challenging in a very different way in a very niche way compared to uh, other string sports there's a there's a strong uh, strength component strength endurance component to the sport itself and there's a lot of repetition to the sports events and it, it's very difficult uh, not just physiologically but mentally for somebody to be standing on a five by five platform and repeating the same movement over and over and over with with proficiency for the course of ten minutes you know and it, it takes a lot out of you and I think if there was more of a of a generally cyclical approach into preparation for for these events, people would end up finding a lot more interest in it and it would have a lot more growth within the uh, the, the states. I liken it as someone with a little experience in the CrossFit community. I liken it to doing Fran for 10 minutes straight. And when you say that, CrossFitters automatically go, oh, oh, I get it. And then they go, how can I get into that? You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> and I, I don't know. I'm a, I have a pipe dream that we're going to see long cycle contested at the CrossFit games just to give folks like a slice of humble pie about how difficult it is. But we talked about. Epic of it, it would be. And to see what some of these fit monsters could do without refined technique, just like going deep into the tank. Well, let's talk a little bit about the state of kettlebell sport because we've talked about the long cycle, which is doing 10 minutes of clean and jerks without putting them down. You're resting in, in a front rack position. And the front rack position is probably different than what a lot of people think it is if they haven't seen kettlebell sport. But you're doing clean and jerks for 10 minutes straight. That is kind of one half of kettlebell sport, maybe even less than one half because there are more divisions and events that are becoming popular. But as far as the two big events in kettlebell sport, that's one. People often just compete in long cycle. You are known as a long cycle competitor. There's also the biathlon. Describe the biathlon for, for folks. Yeah. So, so the biathlon is divided into two 10-minute sets. The, the first 10-minute set is a set of jerks in which uh, its same principles apply. Uh, there's body weight divisions, there's bell divisions, and then there's quotas as far as the amount of repetitions you have to hit. 
And typically you'll have their athlete do the first 10 minute jerk set. And then there's an allotted amount of time in between to rest before they do a second 10 minute set where they're doing snatches. Now where the snatch set in biathlon differs from what some people's experience of, of snatch sets in either strong first or RKC settings is, is that this one does not entail multiple hand switches mm. and it's twice as much the duration, right? So it's a 10 minute set where you are only allowed to switch once whether it be a third of the way through or halfway through or whatever it is that your training has prepared you for, but you get a single hand switch and your goal is to try to achieve as many well-executed repetitions as possible within your 10 minute bracket. This is a very shoulder dominant sport. Everything, every movement in the sport involves putting weight, weight overhead. It's a little bit like weightlifting in that. And actually, you know, the movements are just variations on that. The only difference being in weightlifting, there is no event at a standard competition that is just the jerk. So I guess that's that's the main difference. Who do you think, which audiences do you think kettlebell sport could appeal most to in the United States? I mean, I would I would love it if if CrossFitters just like kind of got got bit by the bug, you know, like and got on board. Uh, I think uh, strongman competitors also would would be really great, uh, just because they're they're used to being very stable, very efficient in awkward positions. So I think when it comes to what they're what, what they can do. As far as expressing force from awkward postures, uh, thinking like a stone carry, Atlas, things like that, they can they can thrive when it comes to to sport. I actually started coaching a a strongman competitor who wants to include kettlebell sport in her preparation for Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. So strongmen are definitely like like I think top of my list as far as people who can get really good and, and grow within the community of kettlebell sport. And I actually find it most difficult, I think, in some cases to work with people who are strict endurance athletes, not because of the engine, but because of the structural limitations that they might have accustomed to over time. Uh, posture and, and, and different degrees of rotation at the hips and the knees um, and, and how that can influence their performance when it comes to the skill of kettlebell lifting. Yeah, it really is. It's a strength endurance sport, or maybe it's actually an endurance strength sport is the way to say it, because you're moving weight. It's sub-maximal weight, right? But you're moving it for many repetitions, and you're trying to do it in such a way that you don't burn out the first few minutes. You know, I've had a few folks ask me, well, why don't you just go as hard as you can out the gate and just go until you can't go anymore? It's like, that's actually not going to be the most efficient. You might only get about half the reps you're capable of if you actually pace over the course of a longer set. Because 10 minutes, one, I am preaching to the choir here. 10 minutes is a long time. Like set a timer for 10 minutes and imagine doing the same strength movement over and over again for 10 minutes. And it gives you some insight. It gives other people some insight because I know you're well aware of the mental game. And, and you talk about that mental aspect and you talk about it as maybe a limiter in the fact that, you know, kettlebell sport has not grown super fast in the United States. It is growing. It is getting bigger, but it's grown slowly. How does the mental component of this differ from other sports uh, that you've coached in, tried out, or you know just have access to? I think um, in in a lot of strength sports, there's a there's an initial approach approach of embracing violence, of going in aggressive, uh, you know the, the the Pantera, the ACDC blasting in the headphones before you go for a heavy deadlift set, and it's very different. Um, what I find helpful for myself is actually spend the time before my big sets uh, listening to things that actually calm me and soothe me and help me downregulate a little bit more so that my heart rate doesn't peak as quickly because again it is an endurance game right, when it comes to your performance so i think that the the mental preparation or the mental approach if it was different it would be a little bit more inclusive for a variety of athletes uh predominantly you know, saying going in there and knowing how to stay calm and composed and then you know part of my french but keeping your shit together when you're in the middle of a set um and 
I think also just that the repetition being okay with repetition, being okay with the fact that you're going to have to do thousands of reps before you decide to get that, before you get that one really good one. And then you have to repeat it again another thousand times to really feel uh, proficient in it. Yeah, I, I fear not the man who has practiced a thousand punches, but the man who has practiced one punch a thousand times, or something like that. I'm paraphrasing yeah. that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk about the technical aspect. That's something I always kick myself over. Is uh, the technical aspect is is really something, and and I want to point out, you know, I I have competed in weightlifting before and trained in that sport. Weightlifting incredibly technical. I mean, you are you are carving a statue and trying to get in the fine little cracks and really polish every aspect of the movement in order to move very efficiently. Kettlebell sports a little bit like that, except you're doing it for many repetitions. So your level of fatigue is changing over the course of your set. And in addition, not only do you have to be efficient with how you're moving the weight above your head, getting it from, you know, the ground position or from the hang position in kettlebell sport overhead, you have to be efficient about how you're bringing the weight down and cycling into the next rep. So this is a probably sacrilege to say, but I almost feel like it's twice as technically demanding because you're doing both aspects of the movement as efficiently as possible. What are your thoughts on that statement? I agree. I, I agree with you. I, I don't have the experience of having competed in weightlifting, so I can't, I can't really like throw my, my uh, a card in that hat. But when it comes to my experience in kettlebell sport, Yes, I, I think that the the mechanical adjustments you have to make in, within your structure, the way that you have to accommodate your spine, the way that you have to know how to load the weight onto your body so that you can mitigate any sense of fatigue, discomfort, um, and, and again, be able to breathe and keep yourself calm while you're performing. Uh, it it may seem as if it's very upper body dominant because you're using submaximal weights in this repetition, but it's actually very leg dominant. And aside from the fact there's a lot of extensor activity coming in from the spine. So I think it, whenever I look at the, somebody's patterns and movement, you know, it's, even when we've had conversations in the past, you know, like it's, it's trust your legs. It's, uh, make sure that you can shift your weight back and forth so that you can depend on your body weight and your displacement to be able to maneuver the bells with as much finesse as possible. It's knowing how to feel comfortable within the rack position and know where your breath needs to be directed so that you can maximize your rack, use it for recovery and use it for force transfer in that vertical position. So there, there is a lot to it in that sense. Interesting. What when you were when you were prepping for a competition? What does your training generally look like? You know, in a given week, call out a training cycle. You know, a twelve or sixteen week training cycle leading up to a competition. So I, I typically will start off uh, focusing on bigger compound movements. I do include a lot of strength work within my my preparation. Um, I, I'm a believer that unilateral training should actually come before bilateral training mm -hmm. to be able to assess and uh, address any kind of imbalances that you may have from left to right side. So a lot of inclusion of things like Bulgarian split squats and front foot elevated split squats, uh, kickstand RDLs, things to basically make it where your hips are generating force as symmetrically as possible. And I, I find that to be a strong foundation in preparation for the, the sport work that comes into play. Um, Early on in the training cycles, it's it's very strength bias with technical work, like in the form of either cleans, jerks, push presses, uh, just rack position holds on the back ends of the sessions. And then I start shifting everything where the ratios are leaning more in bias towards the sport work as we get closer to the competition. So there's a level of specificity that goes into play when, you, when as you approach your actual like meet day, uh, depending on how much time you have in, in preparation for it. What are some of the most common myths or misconceptions surrounding kettlebell sport, you think? Does your lower back hurt from being in that rack position? Right. I've, I've gotten that a lot. I've gotten people uh, posting on, on videos that I've, uh, that I've put up on social media 
um, asking me if my lower back is okay. And I'm like, yeah, you know, my lower back is fine. Um, between the, the 32 kilo rack and carrying my kids and every other thing that I had to do, yeah, my back is better than it's ever been. So um, I think that that's one thing that comes into play. I think the thinking that you have to uh, keep your eyes on the bell the entire time as you're progressing through the movement. Uh, eyes on the bell is, is something that's usually taught in more hard style communities. But if you implement that within kettlebell sport, it makes you chase the bell too much and it ends up altering your position too much. Um, I think those are probably like the, the biggest ones that come into play you know, when it comes to techniques. I love, you know, it's, it's always funny. We've posted on Barbin on social media. We'll post like a really beautiful kettlebell sport rack position and everyone just immediately, I mean, the comments, not everyone, but the comments immediately fill up with, oh, that guy or that woman, they're going to hurt themselves, right? Like, oh, that's their longevity is going to really suffer. In fact, Lorna Clydeman won a recent challenge that Rogue Fitness put out about max snatches in 10 minutes. So of course, like Lorna being... Uh, she's an American. I think she's 50, around 54 years old. She's an all-time great in kettlebell sport, multiple world championships, multiple all-time world records. She's still probably one of the best in the world in her 50s, and that's compared to everyone else, regardless of age category. She won this challenge Rogue put out. The comments immediately started with, well, she's really going to regret that when she's older. Her back's going to be shot by the time she's in her 50s. And she was responding to the comments like, hey, guys. I'm in my 50s. My back is absolutely fantastic. I'm still a world-class athlete. And so that's something that I think is brought up because it is a structure, it is a position that we're not used to, even in strength sports, right? And I think that what folks don't, what they aren't used to, it's easy for them to call out and say, oh, that's different. Ergo, it's bad or has a deleterious effect. What are some things that you wish people knew about you know, back health, about the positions kettlebell sport put you in relative to the, to the actual impact on longevity? Well, if you look at the, if you look at a really good rack position in kettlebell sport, it doesn't require the degree of lumbar or lower back hyperextension that people assume it does, right? And that's where they come, they, they start assuming that there is a, it's detrimental to a lower back. There's actually a lot of thoracic mobilization you end up having to have. There's a lot of breath control and redirection of your breath that comes into play in order to have a really good rack position. So if, if I'm racking bells, I'm actually thinking of loading my elbows and loading the weight onto my pelvis, not stacking it onto, up onto my collarbone, right? It's not a barbell, so I can't load it onto my front belts and my clavicle and assume that it's going to feel comfortable and I'll be able to express force in that manner. I'm looking to load the weight onto my pelvis so that my hips can direct it upwards. And in doing so, I my goal is to try to move my spine out of the way to be able to create uh, you know, in, in fancy terms, a combined center of mass. I want to make it feel as unified as possible so that when I transmit force vertically, I'm able to launch the bells with the most uh, minimal amount of effort on my part because I got to play the long game. I need to last 10 minutes and I need to last more than the other guys beside me. That makes a lot of sense. Juan, we've waxed poetic on kettlebell sport. I'm going to link a bunch of resources to the sport uh, in the show notes and in the corresponding article on Barbend. But where is the best place or the best places for people to follow along with you, your coaching, your competing? And I will say you are a student of, of movement. You're always trying to learn and express new things. How can people get in touch or follow along with you? Well, you know, everybody can reach out to me on social media, on Instagram. It's at URStrength. So that's letter U, letter R, strength. And my website is URStrength.co. Uh, anybody looking to reach out to me, just shoot me a DM, shoot me an email, and I'd love to be able to support somebody in any way possible. Amazing. Juan, I really appreciate you uh, joining. This is just such a pleasure to kind of talk with you in a different environment, and uh, I'll see you again soon. Oh, Dave, it's a pleasure, man. Thank you for having me on.